Thank you for joining us for part two of Mary Baker Eddy and Boston's complex religious history. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org, where we point our podcast compass in the direction of the meeting place of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry. So, with that in mind, we pick up our conversation with Dr. Peggy Bendroth, Executive Director of the Congregational Library and Archives, as we discuss the religious landscape of Boston in the late 19th century. We'll look more closely at figures and sites discussed in the previous episode. Individuals such as Reverend A.J. Gordon of the Clarendon Street Baptist Church, or sites such as Boston's Tremont Temple. These were people and places of consequence in the cultural and religious story of Boston and in the experience of Mary Baker Eddy. I think it would also be helpful to get maybe a fuller understanding of A.J. Gordon's ministry Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, You said he's one of the most significant public religious figures in in Boston. But how does he compare to some of the other notables at the time, uh, uh, Phillips Brooks, for example, or, um, you know, the other Gordon who's at at Old South Church, Cyrus Bartol, or some of these other people? What is he remembered for in general within religious history? He's a very different type than those. His story kind of starts in 1877 when D.L. Moody came to Boston uh, and did a big revival. Mm -hmm. And this is when, you know, the Clarendon Street Baptist Church was kind of a nice, respectable Baptist church in the Back Bay. And kind of for the first time, he started noticing all the drunkards and the poor people um, Mm -hmm. because I guess Moody was kind of stirring them up or whatever. And he just went right out and changed his church no paid soloists, no, you know, fancy clothes. We're going to strip it down. We're going to make this church a place where the down and out and the poor and the drunkards can feel comfortable. And so there is a sense in him that he really wants to reach what he called the unchurched masses of the city. Uh, And he was really opposed to kind of wealth and artifice. And I think he saw himself as on the other side of a line from those kind of wealthy princes of the pulpit mm-hmm. um, at the time. He's also what we call a premillennialist. And, you know, we can get into that a little bit. This is a theological strain that's becoming very popular in the late 19th century. He's one of the main popularizers. And, you know, it's still with us, this idea that the world is getting worse and worse and worse, and it's going to end soon. Mm. And the only thing that Christians can do is save as many sinners as possible before it all ends badly. Um, And so there is a sense of almost kind of cultural despair at the same time. I mean, there's why have women suffrage, things like that, or make the city beautiful. It's it's all going to hell in a handbasket, as they they would have said. And so he is one of the predominant figures in that movement— And that sense of urgency, of borderline despair, need to save people, is also uh, behind his establishing what is now 
uh, Gordon College and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Both came from a missionary training school that he started in the Back Bay um, during this time. It was called the Shortcut School, mm-hmm. derisively, because you didn't go there to learn Greek or, you know, some ancient languages or mess around with, you know, all kinds of theological high thoughts. No, you learned techniques of evangelism. You learned the Bible through and through so that you could get out to save souls before the uh, before the world ended. Uh, and, of course, the school has grown and changed over the years, but he really left a mark, I think, because of that, in that sense that there's really nothing we can do to make society better except mm-hmm. save individuals one by one, mm. uh, you know, is still very much with us uh, right. in kind of evangelical culture today. You know, they don't see systemic evils as much as I'm being personally nice to people one by one. Mm. So Tremont Temple, tell us a little bit about how it figures into the religious landscape of of Boston. What's its place then and, and what's its legacy? So Tremont Temple is one of the, I think, most fascinating stories of religion in Boston. The building, it's still there today, and people probably walk by on Tremont Street and don't realize that they're walking past a church. Um, the building that is there now is built in 1896. It's the third or so incarnation on that spot or near that spot. The previous one simply burned down, but it was modeled after a Venetian palace. So inside it has one of the most beautiful auditorium slash sanctuaries that you've ever seen. So this was a church that started out as what they called a free church. Everybody Mm. in the 1830s were still paying pew rents. They didn't send her on a collection plate. And when you rent your pew, uh, the church can decide who gets to sit there and who not. And, of course, this was a, a racial issue. Tremont Temple was started by uh, folks who walked out of a Baptist church when they would not seat African Americans. So, you know, it was started as a social experiment of a bit. They had to have all of these events, the dog and literal dog and pony shows (laughs) and flower shows and speakers to pay the rent. This is really how they did this. It became known in the city as a center of revivalism, you know, big revivalists like uh, Wilbur Chapman, Billy Sunday uh, would come through the city around the turn of the century, and Tremont Temple would be kind of the anchor, if not the venue, for uh, many of these events. They called it the Stranger's Sabbath Home. Mm. And so it was kind of around the corner from the South End, which at the time was a boarding house district. And so when people came into Boston from the countryside to make their living, or immigrants, a large majority of them were immigrants from the Canadian Maritimes, relatively educated, somewhat upwardly mobile. This was the church where they went to kind of meet people, have a community. The teaching uh, and the sermons in some ways were very practical about how to establish a family, how to be honest at business. But it was also kind of a red-blooded, uh, rip-roaring religion that people in Boston enjoyed. <laughs> well, it's fascinating to me to think that in 1899, the Christian Science Association returns there for their annual meeting. And uh, 
And it's standing room only. They fill all what is described as the 3,000 seats mm-hmm. of, of Tremont Temple. So at this point, was it still, do you think, the, the largest indoor public space in, in the city? I think the Mechanics Hall, which I was okay. built about that time, was now the, the largest venue, but this was still the second right. largest, I think, right. at the time. So it, it seems like it was this civic space um, where people just could perhaps make use of it for whatever purpose they, they had. Um, so yeah. that you could, as a Christian scientist, as Mary Baker Eddy, go there and be vilified and then um, 15 years later come back and be celebrated. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, in the course of my research for this book, I read all of their annual reports, a lot of their records. There is a certain point where they have probably gotten um, big enough and wealthy enough, and they say, that's it. We can't keep <laughs> doing this. Um, there, there are people who are, you know, occupying our building who are teaching things that we don't agree with. And even though, you know, their their money is as green as anybody else's, we're right. not going to do this. But they, in some ways, just had to shut their eyes to a lot of things. Um, the congregation itself would not have endorsed her presence there. But there she was. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that's what makes religion so much fun. I yeah. mean, all kinds of things happen that you don't think are going to happen. We, we mentioned before these religious figures who were supportive of Mary Baker Eddy, uh, at least a couple of them, Cyrus Bartol and Andrew Preston Peabody. So I'm, I'm curious, how should we contextualize them within this landscape of, of Boston? And why would they have been sympathetic or receptive to Mary Baker Eddy and her ideas? Yeah, they're both Unitarians. Mm-hmm. Um, Peabody was a Harvard Divinity School professor uh, and uh, and they're both influenced by transcendentalism. And so, you know, we think of them as more open to the things of the spirit, you know, mm-hmm. of kind of unconventional ideas about where God resides and and uh, and so forth. I think it would be a mistake to say, well, they were just more religiously tolerant than the evangelicals because everyone, you know, was— opposed to Roman Catholics, and they would be for a long time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they were just prototypes of religious diversity. They, I think, understood her language from a different angle than Gordon would have. Our senior archivist here, Judy Haneke, did some research, and she was saying that in early days when um, Christian Zionists were holding services and other uh, religious denominations' homes because they didn't have one of their own, that Mary Baker Eddy would sometimes give a sermon, but oftentimes she would have a guest uh, come in to give the sermon. And, and Andrew, Andrew Preston Peabody was somebody oh, that's that, interesting. that, that yeah. addressed the Christian science audience. So there was a connection mm. there that, that's interesting to, to know about. And this was a, a quote of Bartol about Eddie, at least this is attributed to Bartol, that he says, uh, quote, I have preached the living God for 40 years, but never felt his presence and power as you do. You meaning meaning Mary Baker Eddy. So there was some love shown there <laughs> in, in some quarters. Well, I thought I'd just read from your book, Fundamentalists in the City, Conflict and Division in Boston's Churches, 1885 to 1950, it's interesting what you're, you're saying here. You're sort of giving two different perspectives on 
what is going on with religion in this time. And you, you talk about somebody named Arthur Schlesinger in, in this. You write the following, quote, It was once common for historians to view the late 19th century as an era of upheaval for American churches, brought on by the unsettling social effects of large-scale immigration and urbanization. Following Arthur Schlesinger's description of the spiritual crisis of religious faith at the turn of the century, generations of historians envisioned the church-going faithful as deeply unsettled by the strange new notions of scientists and the strange new ways of foreign people. But then, in the next paragraph, you say the following, quote, More recently, historians and sociologists have taken a different tack, playing down the rhetoric of decline in order to demonstrate the long-term survivability of religion in modern commercial culture. Newer analyses of census returns and congregational records find that, far from wilting under the press of urban diversity, churches flourished as religious competition escalated. By providing a mediating space for religious people to adjust to secular trends, turn-of-the-century urban life spurred a profound transformation, even flowering, of traditional belief and behavior. The city was not the nemesis of religious faith, but the site of its continual rebirth. So how do you parse those two different points of view in terms of our discussion? And then how does Mary Baker Eddy and Christian Science fit in to those two perspectives on what's going on in the cities, specifically Boston in this mm -hmm. case, as a place for how religion is being experienced and what its destiny is during this, mm -hmm. this period? Yeah, I mean, I think Boston is a little bit of a special case, you know, mm -hmm. that this idea that modern cities provide all these kind of new venues for religion. Boston is a little bit more closed off um, than a place like Chicago or Los Angeles where, you know, you could just keep expanding and expanding. It's crowded. And it's conservative in some ways. The denominations are very old. And it's, as we said, hard to build a new faith. But I, I think that this idea that people are always afraid of change, that they're sitting around worrying about something, you know, the next 50 years will prove me true or false. But I think that um, religion is tremendously resilient. Mm -hmm. It's always changing. I mean, historians, you know, this is kind of what we do. We look for signs of decline and crisis because then we have a story to write about. Right. Um, but in the, in the larger picture, it's always changing. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily, you know, you can't say for the better or for the worse. It's just different. You know, cities are particularly dynamic places where populations come and go and different leaders come and go. And the one ending, sort of ending to our story, is that by the early 20th century, many of these evangelicals have literally moved out of the city into streetcar suburbs, as they were called, um, Gordon College, Gordon-Conwell, up to the North Shore. There's less of an evangelical presence in the city. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, and Tremont Temple and Park Street Church remain, but with great, great difficulty at times. So the, the more interesting story is just the creativity and the continual change. You know, the, the whole idea of why is the United States such a religious country? I mean, believe it or not, mm -hmm. you know, we're up there with, you know, 
Ireland and Iran and places like that in terms of people saying that they are religious. It's declining, of course, but it's still uh, an amazingly high compared to Western Europe particularly. And one answer that historians and sociologists have come up with is that religion here is from the ground up. Mm-hmm. It's a person with a new idea or, you know, a different idea or an objection or a new form of belonging. And there is always, you know, there's no laws against it. Um, if enough people kind of say that sounds good to me, then it, it might succeed. I mean, it's not, not that simple. Um, but mm-hmm. when you have a, a diverse place where someone says, like in the case of Mary Baker Eddy and A.J. Gordon, I'm sure that her presence made a lot of Gordon's people understand their theology in a way that they hadn't before because they had to. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just self-evident. I need to really understand what I believe because there's another group that looks like me, but I've been warned against them. And so diversity has a way of kind of sharpening people's understanding, their loyalties, their sense of belonging. Mm. Fascinating. So would you say it's fair to say that the presence of Christian science, the presence of Mary Baker Eddy coming into Boston might have spurred renewal, um, you know, not just spiritual renewal for people who became Christian scientists, but perhaps also had an influence on spiritual renewal for other denominations? Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think um, there's just something that we call religious presence. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there is a whole city block or more Mm -hmm. that is dedicated to religion here on Huntington Avenue. Right. I mean, that's that's important and meaningful, you Mm -hmm. know, and and the fact that there are physical structures that people walk by and say, what's that all about? I think that, you know, you can't underestimate the importance of that even now, even still. Right. So, of course, when you say Huntington Avenue, you're talking about the uh, Christian Science Church yep. here in here in Boston. Well, Peggy, this has been great. Um, I know that there's so much more we could delve <laughs> yeah. into, but at least for me, I've gotten a much richer sense of of Boston in the, in this period, and uh, and I still love the city, notwithstanding. I know. <laughs> that's, it's, <laughs> despite it's all its quirky. complexities, but yeah, um, that's why we all love it. Well, thank you so much. It's oh, thank been a you great for having pleasure. me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure for us and, and very meaningful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to part two of Mary Baker Eddy and Boston's Complex Religious History. Our guest was Dr. Peggy Bendroff, Executive Director of the Congregational Library and Archives in Boston and author of Fundamentalists in the City. Conflict and Division in Boston's Churches, 1885 to 1950. Please join us for the next episode of Seekers and Scholars, when we are joined by Dr. Seth Perry, author of Bible Culture and Authority in the Early United States. Perry is Assistant Professor of Religion at Princeton University. Our discussion will look at the critical role that American Bible publishers and printers played in creating and distributing Bibles to citizens of the New Republic, and how that effort helped shape American culture and identity. Also, a quick reminder about our short three-question survey about Seekers and Scholars. The survey is still up. You can access it through the episode details. 
We love hearing your thoughts about our podcast. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2019.